So today's reading 1 Peter 5, 1 through to 14. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Ask your, all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, who I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet, with our, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. If we haven't met, Arthur Capman's my name. It's my privilege indeed to open God's word for us all this morning. And welcome to those on Zoom who I hope have, uh, I hope you had a perfect take on the kids' talk, actually, the way Michael was sitting and everything before. It looked, looked good for a great talk. Friends, as we come to God's word now, let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you for your word and we pray, Lord, that as we open it now, your spirit indeed would even more open it to us and we might see in it what it means, and we might know how that applies to us. And indeed, in your spirit, we might be able to apply it to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this last chapter of 1 Peter, the apostle brings his letter to a conclusion. And in this conclusion, Peter speaks of two critical factors for the Christian, leadership and life leadership and life. Uh, and actually, even as I reflect on these, these leadership and life, when things are going well, they can be kind of easier. 
but they're much harder in difficult circumstances. And we know that Peter's readers were in very difficult circumstances. They were being persecuted for being Christian. And so this is advice for leadership and life in difficult times. But I also know that right across our congregations at the moment, a number of you have experienced some great difficulties, which you know well. And so in a way, these are words also for us as a church at the moment, as many have experienced great difficulty. So to leadership. Peter speaks to the elders in the church. Now, elder here is not actually a church office. This is not a biblical command for a church to have people you call elders. Peter is actually using the term in a generic way. He's using the term to describe those who lead in church. Now you can say, well, that's the elders. Well, yes, if you want to call them elders, you can. But the point is he's talking about leadership. Indeed, from a biblical perspective, where you lead in church, you are an elder. So while these are certainly instructions for those in our pastoral team, those who have leadership roles in our church, these are also instructions for every area of church leadership. So whether you're leading in music or in children's ministry or in growth group or in or in whatever, whatever aspects of church life, here are helpful instructions about leadership. And in 1 Peter 5, Peter begins by reminding his readers of his own credentials in this area. This is verse 1, if you're following, on 1 Peter 5. Peter writes, To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Peter gives us his credentials. They're threefold. Firstly, Peter is a leader of the church himself. He's got some experience, therefore he's worth listening to. But more than that, Peter was an eyewitness of Jesus' leadership. And he was an eyewitness of Jesus' leadership when Jesus was suffering. So he's seen the suffering leader. So he's seen what leadership means, perfectly expressed in suffering. And thirdly, Peter tells us he writes, verse 1, as someone who will share in the glory to be revealed. As Peter writes this, his focus is on what God is doing and where that's going, and it's leading to glory. I think one of the greatest dangers for Christian leaders at all levels is that the advice we can sometimes hear is very worldly, so that what we listen to comes from those who've been successful in this world as leaders. Now, now people who've been successful in this world may well give us good advice that works, advice that makes us look like really good leaders. But if it lacks the perspective of heaven, of the glory of God, if it lacks that, then the, from a Christian perspective, it lacks everything. But Peter shares on leadership as one looking to partake in the glory that is to be revealed. So this is leadership advice with the perspective of heaven from an experienced leader who saw Jesus, and that's the advice we need. Peter begins, verse 2, 
be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Being a Christian leader, says Peter, is like being a shepherd. Now, actually, in our time, shepherds come in a variety of different forms and types. So, for example, there is the Macquarie Street farmer. On his tax return, it says that he keeps sheep and he makes deductions accordingly. In reality, he lives in Vaucluse and has probably never seen a sheep. That's not the type of shepherd Peter had in mind. Sadly, though, I have met Christian leaders who are a bit like that. They were in charge of their flock, but they actually never went anywhere near the flock. But that's not what Peter had in mind. And as you might have gathered, I've done a bit of national church travelling over the last couple of weeks. And I wrote this part of the sermon sitting on aeroplane a long way from all of you. And I kind of reflected with a very heavy heart. I was, I was a long way from where I was the shepherd. But then... There is the Australian sheep farmer. He rides on a motorbike at the back of the sheep and that allows him to reach any part of the flock with great speed. And he's got a host of sheep dogs who do most of the interfacing with the flock. But this sheep farmer has no real knowledge of his flock, nor they of him. Again, that's not what Peter had in mind. Peter's image of the shepherd came from the first century, a time when a shepherd was someone who walked in front of the flock and he knew every sheep. He led them, he guided them, he defended them, he cared for them, he loved them, he protected them, he knew them. And that's what Peter expects Christian leaders at every level in every place to be like, to be leaders, to be guiders, to be defenders, to be carers, to be lovers of those they lead. That's Christian leadership from Peter. How does the Christian leader do that? Peter goes on to speak of three ways. In each way, he speaks of a negative and a positive. Firstly, it's appeared on the screen. Peter says that Christian leaders are to shepherd their flocks, verse 2, not because you must, but because you are willing. A Christian leader is to be someone who willingly engages in that ministry, willingly. The Bible expectation is that Christians will serve one another, serve in all sorts of ways. It's often said the church is not a cruise ship, it's a cargo vessel. Everybody on board needs it, has a role to be serving. And as we serve, we may have the privilege of leading in that serving. And Peter's saying that's something we should be willing to do. Over the years, I've seen the reverse of that in churches. The person who looks like they got conscripted to some role 30 years ago but doesn't quite know how to stop or the church council member who said they didn't want the job but no one else would do it and so took it on 40 years ago, not willingly but under compulsion. But willingly reflects an attitude of mind. Every Christian ministry is God's ministry. It can only be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's an incredible privilege that God involves us in his work on the world. And and Peter says that all Christian ministry leadership, therefore, should be willing, not under compulsion. Then secondly, Peter says, And secondly, Peter says that Christian leaders are to shepherd their flocks, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. 
not pursuing kind of financial gain. Now, Christian leaders who are paid tend not to be paid megabucks, tend not to. Some have been, but tend not to. But that does not mean that they are immune from the temptation to be focused on the money. And sadly, over the years, I've seen this. The Christian leader who kind of takes every freebie they can, the Christian leader who doesn't give to their church because they don't need to, they're the leader. The Christian leader who doesn't support mission work because they don't need it, they're the leader. The Christian leaders whose financial focus is on themselves, on their holiday houses, on their retirement plans, on their... Now, all of us need to make sensible financial plans, but there is a line that can be crossed. And it seems to me in our excessively materialistic society, it's very easy for all of us in church leadership position to be tempted to cross that line, to be ministering literally for dishonest gain. And that gain is at the expense of those we are serving. But Peter says our tending of the flock is not to be for gain, it's to be eager. By that he means to be enthusiastic and keen, not counting any loss to ourselves, but only seeking the good of those whom we serve. And thirdly, Peter says, I'm not sure that was done wrong, but Peter says that in our ministries, leaders are not to, verse 3, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Another translation says, not domineering others. And friends, the great danger actually in any leadership situation is that we become domineering. Jesus pointed this out to his disciples when he said to them, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, exactly the same words, lord it over them. Where do you think Peter got it from? But Jesus, lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. And then Jesus says in the strongest of words, but it is not so among you. Leaders dominate. That's the way the world is. But says Jesus, it must not be like that with us. Again, there can be a great temptation here. Whatever we're leading, we want to be effective in our leadership. We want to give direction. We can see where things should go. We know what needs to be done. And so the easiest way to do that is to dominate, to lord it over others. But both Jesus and Peter see another way. Leadership here, which Peter says is setting an example. The shepherd who is the example to the flock, not the dominator. The shepherd who, when you look at them, well, when you look at them and when you see what they're doing, then you know the way to go. They're setting the example. This is harder. There are times when it's tough to be the example, times when that means you've got to show them the way, but it marks Christian leadership out. And again, Jesus went on to say of himself, the son of man, that's God, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve, Lord of all glory, came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Christian leadership. It's not easy. In fact, it's actually impossible. And only with the strength which God gives us is it possible. Then Peter moves to the recognition of leaders. I think if I wave my hand. Uh, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, 
you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. When times are tough, when things seem to be going nowhere, whatever area of church you're leading in, at times it can seem like no one notices your work. No one notices. You're faithful, others are not. Everybody seems to say how great the others are. And nobody notices the effort you've put in. The human level, that can be very hard. I've put myself out there as leader and nobody I'm leading cares. Well, says Peter, remember, one person notices. And actually of all eternity, that one person who notices your leadership is the chief shepherd. A lovely way of describing Jesus here, the chief shepherd. Jesus notices and Jesus cares. And Peter says, a day is coming when the chief shepherd will appear and he will recognise what you've done in leadership. Friends, I think that on that day, when the chief shepherd does appear, when that great day, when the Lord Jesus comes and everything will be made clear, I think we may be very surprised at who Jesus recognises for great Christian leadership. Uh, it may not be those who we have thought to be great church leaders who've stood up the front. In our Australian context, it may be the person who has led in a school scripture class in a very difficult and hostile school somewhere in Australia. That's leadership. Or in other countries, it may be the person who has successfully protected Christians from being killed by the government. And the chief shepherd will recognise those who have shepherded according to his way. And finally, on leadership, Peter speaks of an expectation that Christian leaders are entitled to. Verse 5, he goes on, In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Why does Peter suddenly pick on the young? Well, here is a thought. This is a thought rather than a final conclusion, and I kind of share it with you. I've noticed that throughout the New Testament letters, both Peter and Paul have no difficulty speaking of particular groups within the church. So they'll happily talk about what's happening to wives or husbands or slaves or masters or older women or older men, and now, now they're young. And I think that all those verses sit uneasily in our age, and I was trying to work out why, and I think it's because actually in each of those verses, the writer is making generalizations, which are generally true, but those generalizations don't sit well in our age. We, we, we don't like generalization. We like to note exceptions. So, you know, it's generally true that men are stronger than women, but my wife can swim 10 times faster than me is the exception type thing, so to speak. And in fact, neither of my sons has ever beaten my wife over two kilometers in an ocean water race, but, you know, uh, there are exceptions, and our age loves to note exceptions. So we tend not to write to generalize, but those writing the Bible didn't have those concerns. They, they knew there were older people who might struggle with church leaders, but that's not that they're referring to here. The writer's concern is actually that younger people will regard authority in the church appropriately. Now, not, not all the young, Peter knows that. 
But Peter's point is that younger Christians will have their Christian life enhanced. In other words, it will be beneficial for them to submit appropriately to those who lead their churches. Remember in the Bible, Evan shared with us a few weeks ago, submitting is involved voluntarily choosing to put myself in that place, voluntarily choosing, which, of course, is a further reminder to Christian leaders, got no right to make young people submit, no right at all. That's domineering again. But leaders are to be examples to the flock. And Peter says part of that is that those who are young in the church who might not think the older person knows anything, so to speak, are to voluntarily choose to follow that example. So that's leadership. Shepherding, not under compulsion, not for shameful game, not domineering, but willingly, eagerly as examples, not expecting recognition in this life, but expecting that younger Christians should follow. And that's Peter's picture of leadership. And if you notice, it's light years different from worldly leadership, light years, because, but that's because we actually believe in a gospel that turns everything upside down in the end and the obvious thing that you would almost expect it to turn out is the leadership, is upside down is leadership because that's what it does, even the way we should lead. Then halfway through verse uh, 5, Peter changes direction. Three words in the middle of verse 5. All of you. Peter is now shifting from leaders to how all Christians should live life. All of you. This is for leaders and followers alike. And his first point in verse 5 is that for all of us, the Christian life should be marked with humility towards one another. Second half of verse 5. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Actually, this flows very naturally out of talking about leadership. Because if there's one thing that leaders need to remember, it is to be humble. But Peter's also reminding us that all of us need to remember to be humble. What does humility look like here? In the context, it's placing the needs of the other person ahead of mine. Now, just correction, this is not being a doormat. This humility involves a right appreciation of who I am and what my roles are. Uh, wouldn't it be helpful to have me leading the singing? Let me tell you that right now, for example. Uh, but then given my position, how can I serve you in Christ? Verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. The one, of course, we need to be most humble before is our great God. How can we serve him? And ironically, verse 7, serving God involves cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. It's a wonderful picture there of part of the Christian life. We are to be humble before God in every conceivable way and seek to serve him. But one of the ways we can actually serve God and be humble before him is to hand over to him the things that we are anxious about and leave them in his hands. Just a beautiful picture because God cares about those things. He cares about our concerns. He longs to work with them. He longs to bring about good through them in spite of what they are and how difficult they may be. How good is God to us? Now, 
handing things over to God doesn't necessarily mean we don't, it doesn't mean we don't take actions, but in the midst of it taking the action, in a sense, the anxiety is given to God. It's a sign of, in fact, of humility of who he is. Christian life centered on humility. Um, but there is a need for our attention. Verse 8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Friends, until the day when the chief shepherd appears, until that day, there is a battle going on. Battle in this world. According to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 6, it's a battle actually not against the governments of this world who might be persecuting us. The real battle is against powers and principalities, but it affects us. So the Christian life involves watching what's going on around us because there is a spiritual battle and a spiritual battle which can affect us in all areas of life. And so we need to watch carefully in life so we do not get conned. Now, we're getting better at this, say, with emails. Annabelle and I got an email this week from our insurance company. We looked through. We actually couldn't find anything wrong with the email. It looked as though it was perfectly from our insurance company. They needed our bank details. And if we gave them our bank details, a major problem that they were having would be sorted out and it would be much easier. We hit delete. My friends, scams are not just an evil email. The devil has been the great scammer since day one. If you think about his interactions with Adam and Eve in the garden, what he intended was a scam. He intended to persuade them to do what he knew would be harmful. That's a scam. And to his advantage, that's a scam. And he's still going. And let me tell you, this day, Sunday the 25th of February 2024, let me tell you what is absolutely certain. The devil wants to scam you today. The devil wants to scam you. He wants to persuade you the behaviour which the Bible says is harmful, he wants to persuade you that the behaviour which the Bible says is harmful is actually exciting and fun and good for you. But that's a scam. And like all scams, it will end badly. So, so we have to daily hit the delete to all the devil's scams. That's why we need to know what's in the scriptures so we know what to delete daily. Don't believe him. The devil might look like a sheep, the Bible says. He might look harmless, but Peter here in this voice says, no, he's not harmless. He's a roaring lion looking to devour you. So, good. So verse 9, resist him. Standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. Where the devil is working, where he's working in your life at the moment, you know of the temptations you're facing, you know of the difficulties, resist him. Where he's scamming, hit delete. Hit delete on everything he serves up to you. That's how we resist him. 
The letter finishes with some concluding verses. Silvanus has helped, oh, it's Silas, it says in my version, Silas has helped uh, Peter write this letter. Um, that's helped the scholars because apparently the language here in the this letter is quite prosaic Greek and people say, how could a Galilean fisherman who uh, we saw earlier in the kids' talk uh, write such good language? But probably Silvanus helped him with the, with the language uh, and writing this letter. Uh, uh, Peter is most likely writing from Rome, which in verse 13 he calls Babylon because it was so identified with opposition to the Christian faith. And he mentions his son Mark. Mark, who would write the gospel, is with Peter. Indeed, many people believe that Mark's gospel most likely came from Peter's teaching. As we've worked through this letter over these last two months, I've been very aware of a number of major difficulties which there have been amongst people in all of our congregations. I don't need to mention them, but I've just become been aware of not minor things, not trivial things, very serious things have happened to members of our church in the last two months to you. It feels to me like the devil has been throwing major barbs at us, at you, throwing major barbs in a, a number of different ways. We may not have been persecuted by governments, but compared to some of the things that have happened to some of you, actually government persecution might have been preferable. And it seems to me when, when we're suffering, the pressure increases on us. And it's actually harder to live the Christian life and harder to lead because of the difficulties we're facing that increase the pressure on us. If I can just go completely laterally from difficulty for one moment, think of the pressure in terms of sport for one moment. In union or league, there are great goal kickers you know, who can kick those funny-shaped balls from the side of the line through two white posts and land every goal. And when they practice, they land every goal. I always remember watching the English rugby union goalkeeper practice once, long story, and he hit the post. He could, he could kick so well, he could hit the, the upright post with the ball from the sideline just over and over again. Funny thing was, on that particular time, when his team got behind, the first kick hit goal he had during the actual match, he hit the post he'd been practicing with. So I don't know what that says. But, but, but that, as you see, when the pressure is on, when the result of a goal is a win or a loss, somehow these guys who can do it every time, they miss. That's the pressure. Or in tennis, you, know, you see the great Grand Slam players who win Grand Slam after Grand Slam, the Federers, the Nadals, the Djokovic's, they, they, they can get a serve in every single time except when they're in pressure. And suddenly almost every one of them defaults, a double faults sometime in the game. It's the pressure. And pressure affects the way we operate. And in 1 Peter, the apostle Peter was writing to Christians under persecution. So it was a time of pressure. And many of you, I'm conscious, have been living through a time of pressure. And in that time of pressure, it's harder to get things right. It's harder to do leadership well. It's harder to live life well. And, and, and so Peter here is helpfully saying, this is, this is what leadership should look like, lifted above. This is what life should look like, you know, humility, 
towards God, towards one another. Keep an eye on what's going on. Resist the devil. This is what we should look like. And this whole letter has been a great letter of encouragement. It reminds us who we are in Christ. It reminds us who we are, no matter what is going on in our life. Here's the beautiful picture of this letter. In Christ, we are nothing less than the God of all glories, holy people. Holy people. And the encouragement in the light of that is to live in every way following the example which Jesus, Jesus gave us. And what does that promise? Let me finish with two verses from this chapter. Have a look down at verse 4 again. Here's a word for you today. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Or verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered for a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you that uh, you have given us your word and we thank you particularly for this word of 1 Peter and we thank you particularly for this chapter. And we thank you for your promises of when the shepherd appears a crown of glory. We thank you for your promise that after suffering, you will restore us and make us strong, firm and steadfast. And we thank you that to you be the power forever and ever. Amen.